Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. It's a big week for retail. We did get earnings from Macy's today. We're expecting JCPenney as well as Walmart and Target all uh, later in the week. And of course, these earnings come with a backdrop of potential tariffs. President Trump did delay some of the additional tariffs they pl he planned to impose on goods from China to December from September. But still, the mood is highly wary among retailers. Joining us now is Rick Helfenbein. He's president and CEO of American Apparel and Footwear Association. He's joining us from Las Vegas uh, during a, a convention there. And Rick, thanks for being with us. Let's start with the convention, with the uh, with the mood that you're hearing from the retailers in attendance today. Well, storm clouds over the port bow. I, I'm telling you, I'm here in Las Vegas. 90,000 people come to our semi-annual industry trade show called The Magic Show. And they're buying and they're crying. Nobody's happy. Um, yesterday, early in the morning, we thought we had some terrific news uh, from the administration. We thought the, the Grinch had finally uh, spared our Christmas season. But later in the day, as the lists, um, they called them 4A and 4B, started to pop out, we realized we really weren't in much better shape. 77% approximately of the goods that we bring in for the holiday season will be hit by tariffs of 10% on uh, September 1. It, it's not a pretty picture. People are scrambling. And, and the reason, Lisa, it affects our industry so much is that quite simply 41% of all apparel, 69% of all footwear, 84% of all accessories, including backpacks and handbags, come from China. And we don't really have a place to move it. So someone's got to pay these tariffs. We've been telling the administration over and over and over again, please don't do this. Please don't hit the consumer. So the question is, will it hit the consumer or will it hit the retailers? How much will be passed along to consumers versus sucked up by the retailers? Well, you know, I, a lot of smart people in our industry, and I speak to them uh, regularly, uh, no, no tariff is a good tariff. 10%, you know, maybe it's survivable, but 25% is not. And every time the president has said 10%, it goes to 25. So we're anticipating the worst, not the best. We'll do the best thing that we possibly can to, uh, you know, avoid uh, earnings compression. But you know what the end result's going to be, Lisa? Honestly, prices are going to go up, sales are going to go down, jobs are going to get lost. It's not going to be a pretty time. It's going to be retail ugly for our industry. That's what's unfortunately going to happen. And we told them, we told them, we're telling them, nobody's listening. And you know, you know, want to hear something really sad? Yeah. 90% um, approximately of all um, newborn infant and toddler goods sold in the United States is $10 or less. And they're going to get hit with a tariff. September 1, 10%. What does 10% do to $10? I mean, think about what we're doing. We're, they, they exempted car seats, but not children's clothes. Yeah. 
I mean, crazy stuff. I will say that one important thing for me when my, ch- my children were babies was to buy those 10 packs of onesies and then be able to, if they <laughs> if they had an issue, uh, to simply uh, throw it out without having to worry about it because it was $5 for 10 onesies or whatever else. But Rick, you know, I, I want to I talk in all seriousness, looking forward at some of the retailers and how they're adapting to this scenario. Some people would push back and say, why is so much of the apparel manufactured over in China, why can't the supply chain be moved? Well, you know what? Our retail uh, consumer for the last several years, particularly the millennial customer, is very conscious about product quality, product safety, um, sustainability, environment, workers' rights, human rights. And we've been able to do that in China and do it effectively, whereas when we go outside of China, it becomes a... uh, much more difficult goal to attain. The Chinese have been extremely efficient to work with, so they really uh, generally meet the high expectations of the American market. So what's the administration telling us? They're telling us point blank, get out of China. So where are we going to go? You know, number two place is Vietnam. The president's threatened them with tariffs. Number three is India. He's threatened them. We don't even have a, a second choice. So um, we're in a tough spot. Yeah. We're gonna we're gonna work through it at ten percent. If it goes to twenty five, God, at least I don't know what's gonna happen. So Rick, it's been a pretty gloomy Wednesday. A lot of people talking about the worst case scenarios. You definitely piled on there, but you are in Vegas and you're at this huge trade show. Anything getting you excited today? Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you're like no. It, it's funny. Not at I, all. <laughs> It's funny. On one hand, um, it's positive. There's a lot of people here. There's a lot of activity. There's a lot of buying going on. On the other hand, people are worried. So, you know, the, the economy finally got good. We're finally getting to where we're supposed to be. But, you know, retail's been challenged, Lisa, for the last couple of years. You go back to 2017. We had more bankruptcies then than 2018. Uh, and then 2008. You go to 2018, we lost over a million square foot of retail. In this year, 2019, the first four months of the year, we had more announced store closings than all of last year. So retail business is a struggle, yeah. and then you 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 know look as a as a bellwether for the economy, and you know two thirds of our economy is based on the consumer. Ten percent of the jobs are in retail. Yeah. We keep telling the administration, "Hey, great, you're talking to China. That's a good thing." But stay away from the consumer because we're the ones driving the economy. Yeah. And they they we just worry the administration's getting bad advice. Rick Helfenbein, thank you so much for being with us. Have fun in Las Vegas. It sounds like uh, perhaps another another go at the slot machines. Rick Helfenbein, President and CEO of American Apparel and Footwear Association, phoning in from Vegas. Thirty-year yields in the U.S. currently 2.04 percent, the lowest on record, tumbling in the wake of fears of a recession, of a global turndown. As we do get weaker-than-expected manufacturing data out of China, as well as the German economy shrinking in the second quarter. Joining us now, Axel Mark, President and Chief Investment Officer at Merck Investments, uh, coming to us from San Francisco. Axel, thank you so much for being with us. What do you make of these thirty-year yields today? Great to be with you. Well, as you point out, they do reflect fears of a global slowdown. 
Um, the, the, the big issue I have with all this coverage of the markets is that all the issues you're mentioning is, are not issues the Fed can fix. The Fed cannot fix China. The Fed cannot fix Germany. The Fed cannot fix the trade war. And financial conditions are super easy. And so rate cuts are not the solution. The reason these long-term rates are low is because, obviously, when you have a global trade war, the uh, business sentiment is declining. And, and yes, you're going to invest less when those sort of tensions are about. But you, you, you're giving it the wrong medicine if you call for a rate cut in this sort of environment. So if the Fed can't do anything, then are people not pessimistic enough? Um, <laughs> well, I mean, the, the question is, what sort of pessimism is there, right? The U.S. economy is a fairly closed economy. Um, the, and if in many ways, it's astounding how well the U.S. economy has, has held up in light of all of this, right? It's not a, it's not a surprise that global businesses um, face some headwinds. But consumers have been doing very well. Um, indeed, as I may remind people, the unemployment rate is near a record low, right? And also, the, the sort of challenges that we are facing are tweet dependent. Tomorrow, the president could come out with a tweet and saying everything is great on the trade front. Um, and then what? Then we're faced with a potentially overheating economy. And here we are talking about a recession because uh, maybe, maybe some more tariffs are going to be imposed. Now, what's happening is, of course, um, the, the inventories are being jolted around as people are hoarding things. And then maybe investments don't take place because of the uncertainty. So clearly, that's a headwind. But again, the Fed can't fix that. And that's also why the yield curve is not inverting the way it historically inverts. Normally, you would have the, the three-year, 10-year invert, and then gradually going from the kind of the, 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 the three-month, 10-year. This way, it's going the other way around. So we are imposing the recession the other way around. Rather than the Fed tightening because of an overheating economy, it's the president inducing a slowdown um, with the tweets and, and the trade tensions. And this is not this, we, you don't need the same sort of cure um, to the disease because the disease is different. So I'm trying to put together a lot of what you're saying, and it's interesting. It's sort of a controversial issue. You're actually making an argument that the that the U.S. economy is closer to overheating than many people think, and that the Fed should really respond to the economic data that just isn't that that bad at this point. Uh, what are you looking at to to indicate that we're closer to an overheating than anyone else who I speak to? seems to think. <laughs> well, I'm not saying this is the baseline scenario, but it is a risk not to be ignored, right? Um, and, and absolutely, the, uh, the, the inversion of the yield curve is but one indicator that there's a slowdown. There's clearly global headwinds. But um, the, the, the difference I, I make is that we do have an election coming next year. The president will want to be reelected, just like any president before him as well. So he wants to have a strong economy. And so he has every incentive in the world to reduce those trade tensions, as we just saw yesterday, right? He can take some of these things off again very quickly. question is how much damage will have been caused in the interim and, 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 and what we can do about it. But the Federal Reserve, in my view, would be very well served to, to be data dependent and patient rather than be following political development and nobody knows what the heck that even means. Yeah. <laughs> Instead, it's egging on the, the president to, to escalate the trade war and he did it the day after that was said. Yeah. And so my view is that if the Fed just took the long view on this and took a deep breath, um, yeah, maybe the S&P would plunge more, but maybe that would send a signal to the White House. And instead of the Fed becoming a tool of the president, they certainly don't want to become a tool, but Powell is exactly doing what, what the president wants and, and is, is egging him on in many ways. Axel, just real quick here, what would you have to see to change your view and say, you know what, markets are right, the president is right, the Fed should cut rates? 
Well, financial conditions need to deteriorate. Financial conditions is not the VIX index. The financial conditions is look at the finance, uh, the, the Chicago Fed financial conditions index, um, rather than most of the other ones that have too much weight on the VIX. Uh, you need to have a deterioration in the transmission channel. That is what the Fed should look at. Access to credit needs to become more difficult. You don't need to have just a hiccup in the S&P. And so if that were to happen, lowering rates helps. Lowering rates doesn't do any good. And, and that's why I, I'm not suggesting there isn't a slowdown, but the Fed can't help the slowdown. But if we already have accommodative monetary policy. And so there's really nothing the Fed can do at this stage. And it would be very helpful for the Fed to just communicate what it can and cannot do. Yeah. Axel Merck, thank you so much for being with us. Axel Merck, President and Chief Investment Officer at Merck Investments in San Francisco. WeWork filed its S-1 form ahead of its initial public offering today, and our reporters and analysts have been parsing through the document quite a description of losses and also hope for community and what that could potentially reap in terms of money. Joining us now, we're very lucky to say, is Jeff Langbaum. He's senior REIT CRE equity analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, and Ellen Hewitt, a startups reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us from our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. Ellen, let's start with you. What did we learn today from uh, the WeWork company's IPO filing? There's so much to parse through. I'm still going through it, and and I still have a lot to go through. I think the main story is, yes, this is a company with a lot of growth and a lot of losses. They have been losing um, you know, close to $2 billion in 2018. Those were numbers that we knew already, but we're starting to get a closer look at just how quickly it's growing and just how quickly its losses are growing. And there's lots of other interesting information in there as well, in particular about the relationship between its CEO and co-founder, Adam Newman, and the company. There's a lot of complicated financial structures that over the years, WeWork has done to help support um, Mr. Newman and and vice versa. There's it's a very close relationship with a lot of financial structures in there. So Jeff, building on what Ellen just said, we saw just how quickly their their revenues are growing and how quickly their losses are growing. At first blush, what's your big takeaway? Was this better than expected from your uh, from your point of view, or worse? Um, I, I would say probably about the same. Um, the the one thing that really stood out to me was that it's it's not clear how they can continue to grow revenue the same magnitude that they've been growing it without also continuing to increase their costs, right? Because their revenue um, grows when they add new uh, incremental locations, and that's a costly um, endeavor. And so in order for them to approach profitability, they really have to, I think, scale back the, the expansion. Um, and, and then that you know, kind of gets you back to what's the valuation and how are we looking at this thing? Is it a high growth vehicle or is it a, a, a eventual profit generator? Ellen, this morning, Tom Keen was parsing through the uh, filing and he found numerous references to the word community. I, I imagine it was over 10. And I'm wondering what actually at its heart is this business? What is its competitive advantage and, and, and what will distinguish it from, from, from other companies that try to do the similar kind of thing? If you ask WeWork, they'll they'll give you an answer that's that's pretty abstract. They talk about the idea of the power of we, and that's connected to this idea of community. It's this this sense of togetherness and and working together better, and and it's part of this brand that WeWork has really developed that they try to use to set themselves apart from your Regis or your other sort of 
stayed office providers. They really believe that building a global network of these flexible office spaces is going to provide something that is beyond just easy access to space. You know, they have a lot of enterprise customers that I imagine look at WeWork as a very simple and easy way to, for example, set up a satellite office in a city where they maybe don't currently have a presence. It's much easier to do that by paying WeWork than by you know, hiring your own real estate team to go and look for places and sign a 10-year lease. And and that's maybe the more um, practical business uh, application. But yeah, they, they talk about this idea of community being really central to what makes WeWork different. In fact, when they sold um, bonds last year for the first time, this was when we first encountered the infamous metric community-adjusted yes. EBITDA, which many people mocked. Um, but it, it's interesting that we were chose that because it, it is indicative of how much they believe in this idea of community being central to uh, their business. If you'll notice, community-adjusted EBITDA is not in the S1, yes. although I looked back at some of the draft versions, and it is in the first three draft versions of five. So, so some, it made it some of the way. Some banker cut. said, no way are you subjecting yourself to that again, guys. Mm -hmm. No, just stop. Uh, Jeff, I do want to ask about the business model from a real estate perspective. I always am unclear of how much of WeWork property is owned versus leased. What's sort of the breakdown here? The majority is leased. They disclosed in the S-1 that they have $47 billion of lease obligation, um, and that compares to $4 billion of committed revenue backlog. So, um, you know, if and when we have a, a economic downturn that pulls tenants away from office space, they're on the hook for a lot more than what they are obligated to receive, um, and and you know th this will that will really test the power of their community. How many of these tenants that are on short-term leases with them stay, um, as opposed to you know pulling back and and finding somewhere else to run their business um, if they don't need that cost? And then what does that mean for WeWork going forward? Ellen, what's the what's their goal as far as how they plan to expand revenues here? You know, I think it's just continuing to look at growing in parts of the world where they don't have as big a presence. Commercial real estate is a huge addressable market. This is something that they always talk about when they're trying to make the pitch for why you should believe that this company is worth $47 billion, which was their most recent private valuation. They look to areas such as in South America and in Asia and point to, you know, the low penetration that their business has among you know, the office real estate market. And, and they say, look, we've really figured out how to retrofit and fit out with furniture an office very quickly, very cheaply. You know, it might also look the same as if we work somewhere else in the world, but look, we can do it for not a lot of money and not a lot of time, and that's going to help us grow more quickly than everyone else. Um, and as, as we mentioned earlier, they talk a lot about how if they needed to get to profitability, they could just stop growing. And in fact, in the S1, they cite a couple examples, including one in London, where in the wake of Brexit, they felt like maybe they should slow down growth. And in doing so, they were able to show that their occupancy rates went up. So yeah. they're obviously looking for examples where they can point to and say, look, if things go poorly, we have a little bit of a, a place to fall back on, which is if we stop growing so quickly, we won't lose money as quickly. Um, but yeah, yeah, while they think the going is good, they'd like to grow as quickly as possible overseas. Jeff, I do have to wonder, especially if most of their contracts are leases and not ownership over these commercial properties, what the asset liability balance is like. I mean, it's not secured. What are their assets that they could liquidate if they do have a problem? 
that's unclear. Um, they, they, they do own some, um, but they're all in kind of complicated structures. Um, but, but re- realistically, this is a, it's a, it's a, it's a very complicated, large sublease business, right? They lease off the space, they turn it around, they, they make it cool, um, and then they sublease it. And they've got average lease length. Uh, their leases are average 15 years, and their member leases are average 15 months. And so they are definitely mismatched. And, you know, the, the, for, over the past 10 years, as they've been growing, it has worked because the office market has been expanding. Um, but it, that is, has yet to really be tested. Jeff Langbaum, Senior REIT and CRE Equity Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Ellen Hewitt, uh, Startups Reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us from our San Francisco studios. Thank you so much for your time. talk a lot about the war in technology, the war for the latest advancements. And a lot of times people talk about quantum computing, the idea of what's next, sort of what's the next sea change within the computing industry. Luckily, we have Dr. Bob Sutor. He's vice president at IBM Q Strategy and Ecosystem at IBM, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Uh, So Dr. Sutor, I'm wondering, can you just start by explaining what is it that you do? Well, I'm in IBM research. <laughs> okay, there we go. I mean, basically, uh, we talk about quantum, quantum computing. What are we actually talking about here? Well I, well, I mentioned IBM research because we deal with the really, really, really new things that are going to be coming to market in 5, 10, or sometimes 20 years. So quantum computing, uh, which is what we do, um, is developing an entirely new type of hardware and software stack to solve problems that really today are just not tractable using existing systems. So give us an example. So uh, let's take um, um, option um, risk analysis, right? So you're trying to figure out, you you have a portfolio, and you could be a hedge fund, or this could be your retirement account. Uh, When you start thinking of the stocks and bonds and derivatives and all these different types of, of instruments, there are so many different connections between them and also things that are happening in the world. When you start to analyze these things, the combinations just grow exponentially. And here I literally mean exponentially and not just a lot, all right? Current computers can't handle that. They can't handle that growth. And so they require either a tremendous, in fact, ridiculous amount of memory to process or maybe only a million years to do the computation. This is a really important point, and it's something that a lot of businesses are looking into. And even from a governmental standpoint, there have been proposals that perhaps regulation of banks, for example, should be done uh, with quantum computing to basically abstract Mm. out what the potential risks could be, given what you're seeing on the ground. When it comes to current day application of some of these technologies, what are you seeing in terms of that? So first, quantum computing is several years away. I really need to emphasize that. So we are looking for the applications that can do better than classical computers in three to five to 10 years. So this isn't a situation where you use a quantum computer today to help you. It's longer term. But people who have longer term research programs who can invest in this and want to be first to market will get behind this. So I mentioned the financial services applications. Uh, There are some situations where quantum computing may help find new patterns in data. So to help AI, to help machine learning. And then also chemistry. 
there's always this idea that uh, we want to find new drugs, discover new drugs. Now, when I hear drug discovery, it's almost like you're wandering around in a forest looking for the, the great drug. Let's compute that instead, right? Let's actually model the molecules exactly in a computer so we can compute with them, we can manipulate them, and figure out how they're going to work with you. Is quantum computing basically just really fast computer? It's a completely different type of computer. So it's not like your laptop or your phone. From the very lowest level, it's completely different, which means all the software above it's completely different as well. Who's ahead in the race for the uh, secret sauce when it comes to quantum computing? I mean, uh, we talk about the U.S. versus China. Are we seeing a greater degree of mm -hmm. development in China than the U.S. on this, on this front? Well, we really can't tell, so I, I, I can't comment. I can only talk about what I know about um, in, for example, the United States and, and Europe. Um, all of us are doing a tremendous amount of work. There are different quantum computing technologies. Um, I would say right now, and yes, it's my organization, but I, I think IBM is ahead in terms of producing the quantum computers and making them available. Uh, we've had quantum computers online. I mean, people can go to the IBM Q experience right now and use, use a quantum computer. We've had them for three years on the cloud. 145,000 people have registered. So that's really interesting, and it brings me to my next question. Are you finding the talent that you need to hire, to bring into the fold, who can do this work and push us forward? We're finding some of it, but education is a big part of what we're trying to support right now. Because if this is so different, if you think about all the software engineers out there, none of them a priori know how to code a quantum computer. Now, it turns out in many organizations, there's the occasional quantum physicist who you can recruit. Uh, but we're trying to train more in undergraduate classes. We're supporting graduate students. Um, this, in fact, though, I, I will say, is the most common question when we talk to clients. Who should I hire? What sorts of people should I have and get on board now to help me with this quantum computing future? Which industry do you think will be most radically changed by the advent of some of this technology? First up, financial services. Second up, all those things that relate to chemistry. So ultimately, healthcare, but also material science, creating new alloys, all sorts of materials that people will see. But bring this down to the level of, you know, when you go to buy clothes, is it something where you could potentially have a jacket that keeps all of your warmth in and yet is paper thin? Or, I mean, what, what's, what's the actual kind of application here to give people a tangible sense of how different things could look in their physical world as a response to this, or in, 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 on the heels of this technological advance? Well, uh, Daimler Mercedes, for example, who is one of our partners in the IBM Q network, they're working on new battery technology. So future electric cars, if everything goes well with quantum computing, will be much more efficient and last much longer. And that's how you will see it. Most people in their day-to-day -day lives will not say, hey, I'm using a quantum computer to do this. They may see new shampoos. Yes, they may see new materials, new, new textiles, um, new materials in their cars. Uh, you know, we may actually use quantum computers to create new materials to create even better quantum computers. 
What about cost-wise? I mean, is it going to be cost prohibitive for anyone but the biggest companies to sort of engage with this technology at the outset? Uh, no, it won't be because it will be available on the cloud. So people will not be buying their own quantum computers. They will be accessing them over the cloud in different models. In fact, the IBM Q experience, which I mentioned before, if you want to get up and started, it's no charge. The software we use is open source. There's no charge. I'm sure it's sort of a, a good tactic. In other words, get enough people in the fold and understanding what this is uh, to have the ecosystem to keep it going and push it ahead. Dr. Bob Sutor, mm -hmm. thank you so much for being here. Fascinating. Vice President of IBM Q Strategy and Ecosystem joining us here in our 1130 studios. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.